1: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
2: hello and welcome to second opinion with me dr christian this is the medical podcast that aims to soothe your sores and pour unction on your ailments I have to make it clear for some bizarre reason known only to lawyers that if you feel unwell whilst listening to the podcast you should always seek medical help either by using NHS 111 helpline consulting your GP or visiting your nearest hospital. The opinions expressed in this podcast are obviously my own and those of my guests. Right, now that's my contractual obligation done. Let us crack on. See what I did there with the show. It wouldn't be second opinion without my second opinion. Alex Stanger. Alex, are you well?
3: I am. Do you know what? We do have the start of the show written. Really. Down and that's it, and then we're just free form. And you change it every single time. I can't keep up with you, Christy. It's <laughs> you're I'm just on fire.
2: I am so on fire, and I'm particularly excited because I have a dear, dear friend and a man I respect enormously in this studio today, Professor David Nutt, who is a professor of I never get this right. It's psycho something. David, what are you a professor of? Neuropsychopharmacology. I nearly got it right. Just the, wrong, cool. way just the way round. wrong
3: way around, yeah. Doesn't
2: matter really. So um I, I don't want to bang about. Yeah. Wow this but because he's probably sick of it but david was the former sar- drug star for the conservative government and basically got sacked for telling the truth didn't you david yep but you haven't essentially... done badly out of it i think really
4: well,
2: uh... i got to meet you christian
4: you did it? get to meet me <laughs> i got to become sort of famous notorious perhaps rather than famous. <laughs> no I,
2: th- I think you are and i think you're doing fantastic work so i'm very very pleased that you could come on board with us and so today if you haven't guessed already with my little hints um we're talking drugs uh and addictions and all sorts of things you got boys Alex is this a concern for you? Yes, an whole? absolute
3: concern. I think any parent out there it's a concern, but it's been a concern for decades, hasn't it? Every parent goes through each decade and it's not nothing new. I suppose that we just get more concerns because we become a bit more out of touch maybe and we don't know what is around. And or, more and more
2: things keep coming.
3: And more and more things like synthetics and things like that keep coming and I just y- y- you don't know what the market is because you're not possibly. In it? In it. Or looking for yet yourself. Scoring and anymore. So yeah, possibly. <laughs> but you know, it's that kind of thing. So I think that that lack of knowledge as a parent, um, yeah, I would like to be a bit more educated, I suppose. And oh. I think actually, to be fair, the school systems at the school that we go to, they are definitely trying to educate us parents to know what we're dealing with because I think that it's a sea change from where we were 20 years ago to where we are now so yes that is my concern is possibly a lack of knowledge more than anything well I
2: hope we will address that but first you know I want to talk a little bit about so I have patients and they say to me things like oh doctor I'm addicted to crisps you know I'm addicted to sugar I just and I want to know from the prof himself um, whether they have any foundation in these claims or not and what your thoughts are on that yeah, I'm or sex even. I'm addicted to sex, you know. Yes.
4: So that's a very complicated question. Um because because let's well, start you off, you know. <laughs> yeah. So addiction uh is a, a process. It's not it's not a simple behavior. It's a process and it it's a process that involves a whole range of different factors. And one of them of course is liking. So sure, people who like drugs uh In that sense, similar to people who like crisps Mm. or like sex because there is an immediate reward, immediate pleasure from it. But liking something isn't enough to define it as an addiction. Uh, And typically, we bring in two other important variables. Uh, One is the inability to stop. Mm -hmm. And the second is having withdrawal reactions when you do stop. So being unable to stop is craving. So so I don't know. Have you ever come across anyone that actually craves crisps, who dreams of crisps? Pregnant women. Ah, <laughs> uh,
2: pregnancy is different. My mother and Cornish pasties, apparently. Yeah. Maybe we'll
4: come back to pregnancy. <laughs> when pregna- she was pregnant. Pregnancy actually, later, that's- yes. That's <laughs> yeah. right. It's it's a great Fascination of why pregnancy changes people's appetite so much. But let's park that. That's another, that's another, that's another whole, podcast. That's another right. podcast. Okay, all yes. right. But so people who are addicted to drugs or, or to other activities like gambling often it dominates their life. So they you even, know, as I say, even when they're when they're asleep, they might dream about engaging in it. So that's where it's rare with people
2: just wanting to eat crisps. And we seem to confuse a lot in the media. It certainly sort of riles me slightly. Um, the words addiction and dependency, they get them yes. wrong and, and used yes. wrong. And to me, and again, you miscorrect me. I tend to when I'm talking to patients say, look, in a nutshell, um, addiction tends to lead to harm, whereas dependency. Probably doesn't. Is that fair? That's or- not a
4: bad, an- a bad analysis. I mean, what it, th- there's been a cyclical process of when I started training in medicine, it, people were addicts, and then it, that was seen as a pejorative term, and then drug dependency syndrome came along as a way of perhaps being less critical. Yeah. But then everyone was dependent. You know, people started saying, "Well, am I dependent on insulin? Am I dependent on antidepressants?" And then it ended up being a useless term. Yeah so now we uh, we go back to talking about addiction and one of the reasons we do that is because people who are addicted real addicts talk about being addicted they know that they are locked into a behavioral process which it's very hard to break out from and it, it's that compulsion which makes addiction particularly challenging yeah.
3: sorry is is that something in and this is really base. Yet again, I have to keep saying no, this base. is really we base. Like
2: like is it. there
3: something genetic, or is there something in the brain that means that you may be more prone to become an addict than the person standing next to you? Have addicts got a predisposition? There, there is no to...
2: one standing next.
3: to you. <laughs> No, I know that. But is <laughs> there? Because I remember reading a quote from someone who was a former addict, and they said it's like Russian roulette. You know, the person next to me could be taking heroin and they won't become addicted, but I will take it and I will become addicted.
4: So the answer is there is unquestionably a predisposition and some of that's genetic and some of that's environmental. So let me give you the example. The best example I say is alcohol. We know that 85% of the British adult population drink alcohol. Probably about 12 to 15% are addicted. So that tells us there's a difference between those people who are addicted and those people who aren't. And to some extent, that's going to be in the genes, because we know that particularly if you're a boy and you're a, the, your father was an alcoholic, you've got a significantly increased risk to being alcoholic yourself. So, and in fact, some of the genes have been identified. So there's genetic elements. But of course, there, was, there are also environmental aspects. And I mean, most typically, of course, it's the it's the relationship between your ability to, to do something else, uh, and uh, and therefore get off your addiction. So, you know, if you if you look at say two groups of people, like you look at the Bullingdon Club, you know, people from Oxford taking cocaine when they're students, against kids in a out of, you know in a in a state in London perhaps taking crack cocaine. They're much more likely to get addicted if they've got very little else to do, and they have got little opportunities. The bullying to got most of them managed to stop using cocaine, not all of them, but most of them. Whereas yeah, <laughs> so, so, so social deprivation is also a major driver in terms of perpetuating behaviour. And of course the other point is the more you're into a behaviour, the harder it becomes to break
2: out of it eventually. All right. So I haven't quite got a clear answer. So uh, sex addiction, crisps addiction, is so it So Crisps th- pretty unlikely unless you're you be eating so many. Or oh, is it just an excuse that footballers use the sex addiction thing? Well, know? that's
3: what I always like. Michael Douglas, you know, is that real? Is sex addiction real?
4: Well, if you can't, if it's the behaviour you can't stop, and you're doing it to the point where it's destroying your career, then yes, it is real. I mean, if it would merit treatment, wouldn't? It? What? If, yes, I mean, I, you know, I would certainly, if you seek help for it, then yes, it's real.
2: Yeah, true. That's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. I mean. I tell you, the other thing that's really getting on my tits, can we say that? We can, we've said it, is is the whole the opioid crisis thing that's coming out of America. And I find it, okay, there is a point to it, but I also find it very, very stigmatising to patients, totally. you know, in this country who actually need these medications. Have you heard of, you know, Trump's whacking on about it yeah. and God knows who's going on about it and we doctors are all terrible and killing everyone and over-prescribing, but they're very useful drugs, aren't they? Well, I think morphine is probably one of the top
4: five drugs in the history of medicine. Yes.
2: You know, and, and yet I think it's just been grossly stigmatised. And now any patient of mine that I want to put on a, on, a, on a medication, you know, there's this immediate sort of pulling back and drawing away and, I'm oh, I'm not sure, or Donald Trump says this, and I want to tear my hair out.
3: You mention America, though. I mean, do they have a worse problem than we do? They do you certainly. Think, with, with prescribing. because oh, I, it, goodness. It's always something you hear about with celebrity deaths and all of this. It's, it's, it's the prescription of...
4: It's yeah. what they prescribe yeah, as well. It's very well strength different. of what
3: they're prescribing.
4: So America is very interesting because you know this is, this is the, this is one of the challenges of having a completely free market in medicine. You know, you can, in America, you can go to a doctor with your backache and get your prescription for OxyContin, yeah. and you go to a, and you, an hour later, go to another doctor and right. get your prescription. In Britain, it's a bit harder to do that because most people are in the NHS, in most of those prescriptions, are linked. So that so the first thing is there's doctor shopping, mm-hmm. uh, and the second thing, and of course, the, the problem in America was. It started off by the, a degree of overprescribing, prescribing, in, particularly in the more deprived areas, you know, where, where the, you know, people were basically unemployed and, and in pain. And then they were getting Medicaid and they were getting prescriptions, inappropriate prescriptions for opiates. So, so the, they grew a problem, but then they compounded it enormously by suddenly stopping prescribing. <laughs> because it's about the most dangerous thing you can probably do. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then people just went well where am I? you know they went into withdrawal. They started they, and straight onto the streets to to get the black market replacements. And then they started they were being given fentanyls and and they were dying of the stuff they were trying to get to treat their opioid withdrawal. So so it was a, it, the American model is a complete you know is an example of how to do it wrong right. and how to make it even worse by stopping doing it
2: wrong. Now one thing I want to go on to is and I think a lot of people are unaware of this is that um you know a lot of the drugs, that are currently illegal potentially have really valuable therapeutic benefits you know we struggle to treat a, a lot of psychiatric illnesses a lot of people don't respond very well to antidepressants people are in therapy for years looking for help with with, with you know severe traumas and never perhaps really find peace or find total uh, absolution you know for, for, for their issues David you research a lot of these drugs don't you I and do, I do. and I think you would agree there are potential benefits but Enormous. I bet it's really hard work to even yes. do that research, isn't it? Tell us more. In, yes. So um, it's
4: if you look at drugs like cannabis, MDMA, magic mushrooms, these were all medicines before they started to be used recreationally, and it, they were all made illegal in an attempt, a failed attempt to stop recreational use, but. What that illegality did very effectively was to stop medical use, because you know, you know, doctors. One mistake by a doctor, you know, you're struck off. So, okay. so medical use has just disappeared. For, in the case of drugs like magic mushrooms and cannabis, really back to the 1960s, and that, to my mind, is an enormous waste. So, about 15 years ago, we we started to ask the question: Actually, what do these drugs do in the brain? Why 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 are they what they are? Why are they magic in the okay. case of mushrooms and? <laughs> And what does cannabis do in terms of brain function, etc.? And uh, and to our amazement, we discovered they did slightly unexpected things. But one particular thing that magic mushrooms did was to switch off the brain centers which drive depression. And from that, we then went on and did the first trial of uh, magic mushrooms in, in depression. And the effect was a brilliant. A single, quite intense trip could produce Month long, you know, some people actually still still been well three years later. So these powerful effects to to get over a depression, which in they were all resistant depression, they'd all failed on drugs, they'd all been they'd all failed on CBT. So this was a very powerful demonstration of their potential utility. But now we're in an awful situation because some of those patients have actually relapsed back to their depression, but we can't help them again. So why has that research been
2: ignored? It's just simply because the law says they're illegal.
4: Yes, that's right. Um, uh, Because if I was to use them, I would go to prison. I'm allowed to do it in the context of a research study because – and that – difficult enough it took almost three years to get permissions to do the research study (laughs) three three twice as long to get permissions as it's actually to study but now you know i mean i i I cannot get permission unless i do more research which is we don't have funding to do more research so unless i were to do that i can't help people and it's 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 horrible because these people are now going back to have ect etc which you know whereas again a single mushroom trip could potentially be as more effective
2: than a whole course of ect so i want to throw in a little thing here which is that you or um, organisation, Drug Science, is actually a charity, isn't it? Correct.
3: As far as that research is concerned, um, I was going to make a point about the trying to get the funding for it. Yes. I mean, that is that the most difficult thing? Just trying to get the money together to be able to give you the opportunity to do this research? Because I can imagine, it, it seems crazy to me when we keep hearing about medical cannabis and how good medical, uh, or how the benefits of medical mm-hmm. cannabis, that we're not researching all of this much more. Surely we are. Are we not?
4: Uh, well, not in this country, no. I mean, uh, medical cannabis is, has been an enormous disappointment. I mean, it, you start off with uh, mothers having to live overseas mm. to stop their children dying of epilepsy. And then when they find the right medicines uh, to treat their children, uh, they they can't get them prescribed in Britain. So last year, the law was changed to allow cannabis to be a medicine on the 1st of November last year. And since then, I think there have been three prescriptions. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it is... It, and I find that so frustrating because, and imagine being a parent watching your child suffer when you and you know, you know, it's at your, you know, is there if only doctors were prescribe. So it's it's complicated. It's not just that there's not research; there's also resistance in the medical profession to do something different.
2: Huge amounts of resistance. We are a very conservative profession, aren't we? I'm really reluctant. I think we're terrified, actually, of all sorts of things. Um, mm-hmm. But my uncle, I'll tell you, you know, he, he died sadly of, of multiple sclerosis and he would score marijuana from, I mean, he lived in Devon. So where the hell you score marijuana in Devon from? I don't know. You probably have to grow it yourself. But I
3: was going to say top
2: nurse. Do you know? Oh, well, you're the Possibly. girl to go to, then, <laughs> are you? Everyone, Alex is the go-to girl if you live in Devon. <laughs> it's on ley lines. <laughs> and, well, I mean, and that was about the only thing in the end that would help with his spasms and his pain and all the misery that he went through. But there we are. Um, yeah, why are we so... What is our problem in this country? You know, the fact that only about three prescriptions have now happened, mm. you know, for medical marijuana, when some of us, not all of us, to be fair, are allowed to prescribe it. No. Why are we so sort of anti-everything anti, anti everything in this country, David? Do you do you know the answer to that? Well, <laughs> that's <laughs> why. <wide>. Yeah, <laughs> I I that but... yeah, I blame the I think it's the press. But if you look at other countries, there have been loads of precedences. Absolutely. Why do we not look at them? Well, there are... T-
4: I think I, I. Come on, David, why? Why? Right. It's because our <laughs> press, most of our press, find drugs uh, or pretend <laughs> to find drugs uh, distasteful, dist- morally abhorrent. People, you can get a lot of headlines about criticizing drugs. I have this idea that um, some newspaper editors put a little Chip, you know, they come in a little cut on their bedpost every time they get a drug ban, because they not. What else can newspapers do, really? They can expose footballers' infidelity, and they, yeah. and they can ban drugs. And I said so that. So the press has been enormously uh, detrimental here, attacking the use of drugs, uh, and therefore kind of minimising the potential value. So that's the first thing. The second thing: the drug laws are political laws. We countries which have more rational approaches to drugs, like Switzerland, like the Netherlands. They they tend not to have two-party systems where one can fight the other by being harder on drugs. It tends to be more consensual politics. And then when you're consensual about it, it makes sense. You know, you look at Switzerland, you know. So you, you would imagine it's one of the most conservative countries on earth, which it is in many ways. Mm. But they have heroin injecting rooms. Why? Because they don't want people injecting on the streets and dying because it gets in the way of the, you know, the tourists. So you have injection rooms where people can get treated appropriately. You don't get deaths. No, no deaths from heroin overdoses in Switzerland since this time. So it's utterly pragmatic. In Britain, we still don't have an injecting room. Because every time a local group or a wants to uh, set up one, even some local police chiefs now want to set them up. The, the MPs, local, get up and start saying, "You know, this is not not in our backyard. You know, we don't want this." They they change. You know, instead of they call them shooting galleries, which is an insult to the people who use them, mm. and it's all about getting political leverage from. From people who use drugs, who actually, you know, are the easiest people to attack because they actually don't have much of a voice and they don't also mostly don't vote. So, so drugs and drugs and politics are very intertwined in this country because our politics is also, I think, a pretty low level of intellect. And
3: mm. yet, from an earlier podcast we did about addiction, alcohol is legal. Uh-huh. And yet, what's your view? Is it the worst thing that we could possibly be ingesting?
4: So alcohol is the most harmful drug in Britain today. One of the reasons I got sacked was saying that. We did the analysis. Uh, there are 16 ways in which drugs can harm you. And if you add them all up, alcohol is the most harmful to society. If we want to reduce the harms of drugs in Britain, we've got to do something about alcohol. But we don't because there's five bars in the Houses of Parliament. They're all subsidised. People like to drink. You know, <laughs> a lot of... There, I think there are six MPs at present under treatment for alcoholism. Uh it's a huge problem, but we deny it. We actually we f- repress our understanding of alcohol because we like to drink and, uh, and also because the drinks industry is also quite powerful at, um, at promoting the sort of false benefits of alcohol.
2: And I love the way we don't acknowledge that alcohol is a drug. We sort of conveniently, oh, yes. you know, agree. it's different. Yeah, it's con- not the same, yeah. do we? Yeah. You know. mm-hmm. um, there's an amazing organisation actually called LEAP, which stands for, I think, Law... Enforcers or enforcement against prohibition. Now they're a group of, actually, they are really incredible people. So some of these were, you know, they used to infiltrate drug gangs. They go undercover. Lots of them have changed names and addresses multiple times. They now speak out against prohibition, saying everything that we did in our working lives was a complete and utter waste of time, and it does not work. They're they're a really interesting group. If you haven't heard of them, do look into Leap. Um, because that's the front line, the people who were there fighting, going, this is not working.
4: It's absolutely. And there's this amazing story about uh, uh, one of those, uh, those police officers who he was undercover in Northampton, I think, for about five months. Eventually, fingered, got names and addresses of all the drug dealers in Northampton. And then one morning, five o'clock in the morning, you know, 200 police came in, cleared every single drug dealer from Northampton. And by two o'clock, <laughs> they'd come from Manchester <laughs> and Derby, and the market was st- had started up again. My business as usual. What even worse, because they, they were fighting each other for control. Because you created a vacuum, and then the, the outside came in, and this, you know. That, and he said it was just so heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, he he risked his life for months and months and months to get rid of this problem, <laughs> only to make it worse.
2: I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit more about, if, if you don't mind, David, the sort of potential benefits that we might be missing out from. So I remember yes. recording for a TV show an amazing thing in America. It was, it was an illegal under, undercover therapy session for PTSD on on ecstasy. And it was actually it was very moving to watch it happening, but, but it was clearly having therapeutic benefit. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it was a slightly biased, you know, it was just a, a short clip. But can you tell us a bit more about what we might be missing out on? Absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, the example
4: of the MDMA, the history of MDMA is fascinating. So it was uh, rediscovered in the 1950s by a, a chemist who worked for the feds in America. He was making standards so that whenever they caught someone with a strange chemical, he could check what it was. And he took, all, like many chemists, he took all the drugs he'd made. And he said ecstasy had a very special pro-empathy, open. It was different to all the other drugs. And he'd taken hundreds of drugs. Uh, and he gave it to his wife, who's a therapist. And she said, wow, this is amazing. You know, this opens up the sort of the, the mind to other people. Uh, and it was called empathy, and, and he made it available, and lots of therapists in the West Coast used it, particularly for couples counselling, helping people get couples get back together, or you, know, you know get cut through all the sort of crap and mm. you know, all the anger the, and the, resentment exactly the and... resentment that builds up over years. You know, get back to where you were when you were first in love. Everything great, and then some entrepreneurs uh, decided because it was legal, they would remarket it uh, uh, in the club in the rave scene. And they changed its name from Empathy to Ecstasy. And then, of course, that made it very popular, but it also made it the target of the press. And the press then, in all countries, decided it was not acceptable for young people to have ecstasy. And they got it banned. And it got it banned internationally, even though it wasn't that harmful. If they kept the name... (laughs) It that's would probably really still be available. Because
2: ecstasy it? suggests some a sexual element, doesn't it? Of course, it? it does. Absolutely. And therefore, there is judgment and uh, morality and all absolutely. those horrible words that I know. Absolutely.
4: But
3: I suppose the fear is that if you did have ecstasy, that you are not actually having pure MDMA. You could have a little pill that's been cut with rat poison or that's various it's other illegal. things. Exactly. But that's is that that's because it's illegal.
4: Yeah, actually, the, if, can I just discuss a little? Yeah, one of the worst things. It ever happened was when the who and the united nations decided to try to eliminate ecstasy use they banned it but for some strange reason young people didn't care so they and they got very angry that people were still using it so they decided to ban the precursor the thing you make it from which was called sassafras oil it comes from a tree in india thailand, in thailand. India. that's thailand. right exactly thailand. and uh they banned that, and not much happened until one, in about 2008, they they managed to seize 50 tonnes in Thailand. Half the world's supply of oil was stolen, was confiscated in one single um, uh, bust. And they said, great front page of UN news, we've broken the back of the ecstasy market, they won't be able to make ecstasy anymore. Well, actually, that was true for a while, they couldn't. But that didn't stop them making things. You know, when you go to... <laughs> You know, when you're a chem- an underground chemist in China and you've got an order for a kilo of MDMA from Rotterdam and you can't get your precursor sassafras oil, you don't put your hands up and say, sorry, I can't make it, because they shoot you. So, so you think, what the hell can I use? Oh, aniseed oil, which is an an oil that's used in a vast amount of cosmetics, et cetera. So they, they just took aniseed oil, put it through the same process, but it doesn't make MDMA, it makes PMA. Which is? PMA is a much, much more toxic substance. It's like a – it's much – it looks like MDMA. It tastes a bit like MDMA. But when you take it, it builds up more slowly. So people think they've got a bum bum lot. So then they take two tablets instead of one. And after three tablets, you die. And then so for a period from about 2010 to about 2014, almost all the deaths in Britain, which were called ecstasy deaths, were PMA deaths. Because that was all there was, because the MDMA was... So we made a more, a more toxic substance was made in the same way as fentanyl is more toxic than heroin and synthetic cannabinoids are more toxic than cannabis. PMA killed lots of people in this country. Eventually, the Chinese chemists worked out how to make sassafras oil without the plant. And, and now we've got an even bigger problem in a way because they managed to make it so cheaply <laughs> that you can now make a gram of ecstasy for the price of it used to be of a uh, hundred milligrams because they've got a glut of the or So it was a double. You know, we hundreds of people have died through PMA, and now more people are dying because MDMA is so cheap and available.
3: So, it, it, and it goes back to the policemen in Northampton as mm. well. It feels like what you are saying is that any th- these strategies to try and curb things or try and put a stop to certain things. Are not necessarily working to put a stop to, like, that's a massive
4: one if you're talking about. Not necessarily. I mean, have they ever worked? So, when did it all start? When did it all start? It started back in about 1904, 1906, when we decided that it would be good to get rid of the Chinese who were smoking opium. So we ban the smoking of opium. Very easy to ban because they're Chinese people. They look different, and they got pipes, and it smells. Mm. What did they do? Oh, they started injecting heroin. Ah, oh, that was a uh, that was a success, wasn't mm,
2: it? Much better than.
4: <laughs> and every time you ban alcohol, people start drinking hooch and start drinking meth, and you got organised crime. Every single repressive approach to drugs has led to a worse outcome. I mean, it's not as if we ju- we're not, you know, we've known that for a
2: hundred years. I mean, what point are we going to
4: actually take notice?
2: frustrating, isn't it? I mean, you look at prohibition in the, when was it, in America, 40s, 50s, 20s, 20s. 20s, twenty-two or thirty. Did it stop people drinking? No, it did not. Well, you I know, think, far from it.
3: I'll tell you what I think it's frustrating is when I talk to you is that, that we're not doing or we're not, it's not all being voiced. It's not in the public domain as much. We're having this chat now, mm. but as you say, when you look at the mm. newspaper headlines or if you read a certain publication yeah. that me and Christian don't really like very much, I just find it... Slightly frustrating in a way that it can't be an open conversation as such without us all sort of like getting. Oh, it's my,
2: right. my favourite phrase, Alex. It's it's feelings over facts. It's what we do. We put our feelings over our facts. So it's what Middle England does every does single time. time. You know, um, and the paradox is, we end up
4: not only making the problem worse, but also costing ourselves even more money. I mean, it's 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 a lose lose. But we do it simply because. We, we're not prepared to have that open debate and and when you have you try to have the open debate you know like I did and you get sacked because it was politically you know a little bit too risqué
3: yeah you two both of you doctor professor who's uh-huh. obviously done all this research in a perfect world what how would we change this how would we how would you get a hold of it put it
2: in the hands of the people who know what they're doing exactly so you know make it Manufacture it safely, so you know exactly what's in it and at what quantity. So you know when you buy your aspirin from from Superdrug or Boots or any other reputable pharmacy, um, you know exactly what dose you're getting, and what it says on the box is probably true. You know, um, when you buy your ecstasy pill, who knows what's in it? David, what else would you do? It's a good question, actually.
4: Oh well, you look around the world, where you know there's lots of examples of good policies. at work. So you bring those together, you know. I mean, uh, my own view also is, you know, a bit like yours, Christian. Is it having done a very detailed assessment of, of the harms of different drugs, I think drugs which are less harmful to the user than alcohol should be available in, on prescription or at least in pharmacies or or in some other shop, mm. you know, like you know, like a head shop, because it seems to me it's it's, it's wrong and immoral and also un, makes no economic sense to... only allow people to use a drug which is more harmful than alternatives and alcohol is pretty harmful so drugs less harmful than alcohol I think you should you should be able to access in a way and you could have smart cards you know you could say okay if you know if you can have 12 uh, um ecstasy tablets a year 100 million you know that would be your dose. you know that would be a perfectly from almost everyone a perfectly safe dose you you could organize it in such a way that in it they were like prescriptions uh, and that would reduce, an inno- all, you know, almost all the uncertainty about safety, et cetera. Mm. But you also need education and, you need, you know, you need a, an honest debate as well. I mean, at schools, there's almost no, no teaching about drugs at all because it's still this sort of just say no. If you talk about it, they're going to encourage them to do it, which, of course, you know, we know actually, you know, it, it, that might be true to a little extent. But if you don't talk about it, they'll do it really
2: dangerously. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I I don't know if it is true. Actually, you know, we certainly know if well, if you take sex as a parallel, whether this is a valid argument or not, I, I well, that's another debate. But you know, we know that where you're telling kids, say, teaching them purity, oh, shudder, you know, we know that they all went off and were yeah. banging away like rabbits from a very young age. If you teach them all the details of sex, they tend to choose to have sex at a later age. And the rates of teenage pregnancies and STIs go down, and I suspect no. I think that same like the edu- will apply. To- because people have done educational
4: packages around drugs. Just say no, and then kids say, "Well, stop that." Yeah, why? But if you educate <laughs> people properly, I mean, the Dutch again. You know, you, you kind of I find it so weird. You know, that, that they're not very far away. You know, was it forty miles across the channel? Yeah, and they just you know they're like a century ahead of us in terms of maturity. You know, yeah. you know they educate their kids appropriately. They also have testing systems. Almost no Dutch child dies from using drugs because they can get if they want to take drugs, they can go and get it tested, know exactly what it is, get adv- you know, get advice, get feedback on, on what what it is, what its strength is. And also the government knows what's going on.
3: In a nutshell, we were talking, and I think we mentioned PTSD, but we haven't really mentioned what else yes. we could possibly sure. help by using these drugs. So
4: psilocybin, our magic mushrooms in depression, very yeah. powerful. One of the areas I think the area that's going to be most revolutionized by uh, particularly by psychedelics like mushrooms is going to be addiction because these drugs are anti-addictive not only don't you get addicted to them because if you keep taking them the effect wears off but they can change the way you view your addictions one of the greatest stories most people don't know this but the man that founded Alcoholics Anonymous Bill Wilson he had his conversion from he was what they call a chronic inebriate a Yale graduate. They were going to lock him up for life in an institution because of his drunkenness. Uh, so he'd been about 16 years chronically drunk. And he had this psychedelic experience when he, cause he was on a mountain and he's kind of the God was there. And he stopped drinking and he never drank again. And he actually encouraged... Uh, While the drug was still legal, he encouraged the U.S. government to fund six trials of LSD for alcoholism. So he took he took LSD or mushrooms, or he he uh, he's he became a great. He was the man that gave LSD to Huxley. Yes. He became convinced that LSD would change people's minds so that they wouldn't want to drink. And In fact, he became quite an enthusiast for LSD. He wrote to Jung saying, you don't need to do any of this psychoanalysis. LSD will get you to the archetypes a lot quicker. Uh, but Jung was dying and didn't really take up that uh, idea. <laughs> but there were six trials of LSD for alcoholism in America, funded by the US governments. Pull the data together. Bigger effect than any treatment we've ever had for alcoholism. But drug was banned in 1967. Why? Because kids were using it instead of fighting in Vietnam. And uh, since then, I've estimated that over 100 million people in the world have died prematurely from alcoholism. Now, just suppose LSD could help 10% of them. That would be 10 million lives saved. That's more than (laughs) all the Brits and Americans and French who died in the Second World War. Wouldn't that be quite a useful thing to have? That's a profound thing to say.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. But why
4: why is LSD banned? Well, because people were anti-war. Has banning LSD stopped its use? No, has it stopped its medical use? Yes. Before 1967, there were 130 NIH grants, American government grants to study LSD. 40,000 patients were treated, many many with really good effects. Since then, how many studies have there been? Zero. It's 50 years, you know, of, of a wasteland. I think it's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world because there's so many, so much potential for these drugs that has been you know, essentially denied, ignored, suppressed.
3: I suppose it goes back to my initial thing, which yeah. is that I just need to be taught. So yeah. it's we just need an understanding, yes. I suppose. that is that what
4: That's you're saying? That's why it's great to have a programme like this because you, there isn't, you know, Actually, it's interesting what you said earlier on, you know, my sacking was the beginning of a public dialogue mm. about drugs. I mean, largely because I, I, I like talking and, and people were quite interested. Why did you you know, I mean, in fact, it was the worst thing the government could have done. It was. It was right actually, for you, I think. But, but, but up till that point, scientists daren't go on programmes and tell the truth about drugs because they get sacked. Mm. Once you've been sacked, how, you know, you know sort of carry on telling the truth and more and more people have sort of joined in the
2: debate. And loath as I am to um, promote someone else's book and not one of mine, <laughs> actually. No, 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 really. And I, I mean this. David has written a very good book. I think it's called Drugs Without the Hot Air. Correct. Um, so if you want sort of the proper, you know, ungovernmentalized advice on drugs, it, it's not a bad read. I have to say that.
4: Can I say two things? The okay. first is the last chapter in that book is specifically for parents oh good it's what to tell my kids and the second is that the new edition i have just finished revising it and that's been a big task because in the last 10 years a lot has changed so the new version the new edition is going to come out just after christmas i bet it
3: has because we talk about medical cannabis much more
2: don't we david what's the current evidence on marijuana and its and its benefits
4: my view is that this is no not view what's the evidence David? (laughs) the (laughs) The evidence (laughs) is that there are many many potential uses of medical marijuana Uh, if we were to bring all of them into the medical arena, this would be the greatest uh, explosion of medical treatments in the history of medicine. I've said that that medical marijuana is, to today's doctors, what penicillin was in the 1940s. It's, to, it's a plant product that's going to revolutionize medicine. I think it have a bigger impact than penicillin because there are so many different disorders that the medical marijuana products can, could potentially treat everything, you know, from cancer potentially right through to disorders like uh, PTSD and uh, insomnia. So it's hugely exciting. In Germany, there are over 50 indications for medical marijuana that the state insists will be reimbursed by Insurance companies oh, I mean. over fifty in Britain they're talking about four, but the reality is there will be very many more. And what we're trying to do is learn what those are from what patients are doing. So we're going to hopefully drug science is going to be launching a a massive national uh, attempt to find what patients are using. Medical marijuana for, and then putting them in touch with doctors that want to prescribe for those indications, and I think in a in a, a year or so we will gather so much information that the rest of the medical profession will then be confident in prescribing. Mm.
3: Sorry, can I just ask at the moment how many can not all doctors can't prescribe? Specialists it, can, they? can prescribe. So it's only specialists. So we're talking about
4: uh, well, that's quite a lot. People. There's about so? forty thousand specialists.
3: Oh right, okay. Yeah. So but, but it's, it's no, but it's not any.
2: It's specialists in. Isn't it pain medicine? No, no, it's what? just
4: any specialist
2: can prescribe any specialist in any. Only, oh, in any field. Any specialist in any field. I oh, I didn't even know that. So, so Britain's
4: interesting. Unclear. It You're, is. We're the only there. country we've actually basically because we didn't know what to do. The, the chief medical officer last year said basically it's open to specialist prescribing, um, but the specialist then has to get a special <laughs> pink pad to prescribe the cannabis on. But in principle, I don't think any specialist would be denied access to medical marijuana prescribing. And then, of course, what will happen is that GPs, and we have a number of GPs we're working with on drug science, GPs who are interested will then work with a specialist and then take on that responsibility and and, and, uh, basically increase the number of prescribers.
3: So, David, we've been talking about lots of different drugs here, but are there any specific drugs that you would say to your kids, don't go near it, uh, there are no benefits here whatsoever?
4: Yeah, there are. And the the, the the first thing to say is never inject. Never, ever inject a drug because that's the most dangerous way of giving a drug because if it might kill might you when you inject it. But also, of course, there's always a the risk of, uh, of transmitting a virus. So never inject. That was the first thing to say. The drugs which are, are likely to be most dangerous will be strong opiates like the fentanyls and heroin, crystal, crystal meth and crack cocaine. Those are the three classes of drugs that I would still say avoid at all costs. There's plenty of alternatives. Obviously, if, you know, be sensible what you do and make sure what you're doing is, is you, if you ever use drugs, use them in, in, in the company of people who aren't using it and can look after you if necessary. Uh, and if you're not sure, don't or take very small amounts. But really, I would strongly recommend avoiding those three kinds of drugs because those are the ones that are most addictive and most dangerous.
2: Final question, David. It's a biggie. So brace yourself. Uh-huh. If you were the king of the world, to quote a cheesy film, um, what ideally would you change about our approach to drugs, the laws around drugs, everything we've been talking yeah. about today?
4: Well, I, very simply, I would just bring in evidence-based policy. So I would look at as we have done systematically at the relative harms and the benefits of, of the different drugs. And the ones, as I said earlier on, the ones that are less harmful than alcohol, and certainly if they have benefits, I would make available through pharmacies or other kind of licensed premises. Uh, I mean, clearly there are some drugs which are always going to be far too, far too dangerous to to basically put out there in, in any kind of regulated form. But a regulated market for the majority of regula- uh, majority of recreational drugs would almost certainly be the best way forward. Drug science has done some research on that, and I'm fairly confident that that would be not only the safest way forward, but also the way that facilitates research most.
2: And also, actually, interestingly, because it's a market, will actually bring income to the state. So there we have it, folks. Um that's about it. I think we can definitely conclude gross hypocrisy towards our attitude um to drugs in this country. You know, almost a government endorsed pushing of alcohol while suppressing many, many other substances that could have extremely valuable therapeutic benefits. Huge, huge thank you to Professor David Nutt. Um for joining us and talking so openly and wisely alex thank you for being my my second opinion <laughs> my 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 counterbalance to some of my sometimes slightly um swayed views um and thank you to you guys for joining us and listening you can get in touch by emailing surgery at the or you can message me on twitter be nice at dr christian if you've liked what you've heard give us five stars you know what to do thank you for listening and we'll see you next time goodbye